There is a verse of scripture that I've been pondering a lot in recent months, and it's from Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, verse 38. And here's what Jesus says. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. Now, in working on this message, I made an interesting discovery. Although this saying of Jesus is fairly well known, it's not often discussed, especially in some of the Bible commentaries on Luke's gospel. I find that interesting since these are not exactly unfamiliar words of Jesus. This verse isn't as famous as the golden rule, but it's close. And so this morning, I want us to talk about the meaning of these words and how they might apply to our lives today. Luke 6.38 is a call for Christian liberalism. Now, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about ideology. I'm talking about a theological viewpoint that ought to be the rule of the day. I'm talking about Christian giving. In our text, Jesus calls his disciples to be generous in the area of giving. Now, it may help you to know that this is part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. And you can find the longer version in Matthew's Gospel, chapter seven, or 5 through 7. The shorter version is found in Luke's Gospel, the 6th chapter. Now, our text today is part of the, a larger section that begins in verse 27 and stretches through verse 38. And all 12 verses deal with this, with the area of human relationships, especially the challenging question on how to deal with difficult people. So Jesus begins this whole teaching with five short commands. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, and give to everyone who asks you. Now his teaching culminates with the golden rule in verse 31, do to others as you would like them to do to you. In Jewish law, this was often stated in the negative. Do not do to others what you do not want done to you. However, by stating this command positively, Jesus offers a revolutionary, proactive way of treating other people. We're not simply to avoid retaliation. We are to proactively treat other people as we would want to be treated. So the next few verses then gives us five reasons for these radical commands. You must go beyond what sinners do. You must win, uh, you will, if you do that, you will win a great reward uh, from God. You will prove to be the sons and daughters of God, and you will reflect on God's character and be treated as you treat others. That brings us back to the key verse. In order to grasp the meaning of this verse, we need to know that it is set in the context of a Middle Eastern market where buyers and sellers would come and often haggle over prices and quality and the amount of whatever they were buying. It's a scene often repeated in some countries yet today. Farmers bring in their grain, whether that's wheat or corn or barley, and they spread it out on a mat. And potential customers uh, come and examine the grain, make an offer, and the haggling begins. 
And when a price is finally set, the customer offers their container, whether that be a large bowl or a pot, and the seller uses a scoop to fill the container. Now, it's exactly at this point that the process becomes fascinating. In Jesus' day, there were four basic stages of measuring grain for a customer. First, the seller would fill the container to the top, and then he would press the grain down in, in that container and fill it some more. And then the third uh, step, he would shake the container so that the grain would settle, and then he would fill it some more. And finally, he fills the container until it overflows. Now, the seller would catch the overflow grain. They would pour it into the pouch of their robe, and that pouch acted like a carry-all bag so the man or woman who was selling could bring food home from the market for their family. So, in short, Jesus is describing a familiar situation that took place every single time a person went to market. Now, it's unusual to us because everything we buy at Myers or Walmart or wherever is already measured. It's sealed. It's covered in shrink wrap, and it's also labeled on the outside, content sold by weight, not by volume. But in Jesus' day, grain was sold by volume, not by weight. And that's why the verse mentions that the grain was pressed down and shaken together. So with that as a background this morning, let me offer the simple question. What precisely is Jesus teaching us about Christian giving? I think there are two simple answers to that question. One is that when we give, God will give back to us. And two, God uses the same measure that we use. Or to put it in modern terms, if we're stingy, then God will be stingy in return. If we're generous, God will be generous in return. Before I go any further, let's take a look at one of the most famous teachings in the New Testament regarding Christian giving, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And here the Apostle Paul says, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Now that's the application to all of us. You know, on a Sunday uh, when our ushers take the offering, uh, no one pressures you to give as those plates are passed. That wouldn't be legal, wouldn't be ethical on our part. We want you to give because you want to, not because you have to. So the Apostle Paul goes on. He says, and God will generously provide all that you need, and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Now notice the message that is here in this one verse. God, who is the source, will generously provide, that's the promise to us, everything you need. That's the extent of the promise. Always, that's the duration, and plenty left over to share. That's the result. This is God's promise to those of us who dare to become generous givers. You will have everything you need, maybe not everything you want, but you will have everything you need. God will not let generous givers go unrewarded. 
Verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then provide a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. Here God makes a very plain promise. If you need more seed, he'll give it to you. God will make you rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Now, if you're like me, sometimes we hear appeals for money. And I'm sure you've heard plenty of them. Um, And maybe you you felt like, you know, that's a good good, uh, uh, place to give some of my money, but I really can't afford to do that right now. I'm a little short. Maybe the invitation came from the church or from another Christian ministry from a family in need or some school you support, uh, you hear of a need and you wish you could do something about it. It's no problem if we're flush with cash. But what do we do when we're running short on money, but we see a need and we want to get involved? I think the Apostle Paul's answer is clear. We give whatever we can and we trust God to take care of us. It may not be a lot. In fact, it may be a very small amount, but the amount doesn't matter. And here's what Paul's teaching us. What matters is the attitude of our heart. Both in Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God specifically promises to take care of generous givers. And he promises to give back to us in accordance with the measure of generosity that we use in giving in the first place. Now, in essence, God is saying to us, you go first. But you know what? We don't like that, do we? We want to say, God, you give me the money first, and then I'll give. If I win the lottery, I can tell you how many times I've heard this, if I win the lottery, then I'm going to really be generous to the church. If I just would get a better job, then then I'll be really generous to the church. We want to say to God, God, you give me the money first, and then I'll give. And God says, I give you my word. Isn't that enough? Well, your word's pretty good, God, but it seems like I need some cash to go along with it. And to all of our bargaining, God says, trust me. Trust me. I'll give and I'll take, uh, you give, and I'll take care of you, and I promise you won't be disappointed. Now, it's important that we know what Luke 6.38 means, but it's also important to understand the principle behind God's promise. Everything Jesus says rests in one fact, and that is the character of God. When Jesus said, your gift will return to you in full, he based that promise on the truth of who God is. He is a generous, benevolent God who loves to give good things to his children. And because it's in his nature to give, he will always give more to us than we will ever give to him. And that, to me, is the first law of Christian giving. We cannot outgive God. One of our favorite family holidays in our house is Thanksgiving. One of the Old Testament psalms that is often regarded as a Thanksgiving psalm is Psalm 103. And it says this in the first three verses. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins. 
and he heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things, and my youth is renewed like the eagles. What a wonderful, what a wonderful teaching for us. May, may I never forget the good things that God does for us. And then David, who wrote this psalm, goes on uh, to say that this is what God does. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from death. He crowns us with love and tender mercy, and he fills our life with good things. Try doing something. Try listing sometime all the things that the Bible says that God gives to his people. Take a, pick, take a big pad of paper because you're going to need it. And start reading and start listing the things that God gives to his people. But I'll give you a hint, you may never finish that project because the list is too long. You would have to read the Bible, the entire Bible, verse by verse, and find you will find that God promises to give us a lot. Here's just a short list of what God promises to give us. Victory, peace, hope, life, success, everything that's good, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, strength, health, discretion, wealth, honor, power, love, children, a heart to know God, songs in the night, joy in the morning, answers to prayer, food to the hungry, water to the thirsty, rest to the weary, good gifts to those who ask, eternal life, living water, all things, a spirit of unity, the new birth, the crown of life, the light of heaven, and the word of God. That's just a partial list. And what's the greatest gift? It's found in perhaps the greatest verse in Scripture, John three sixteen. for this is how God loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God loved, so he gave. The whole truth of the gospel is in those words. Have you ever wondered why God loves us so much? When we're sinners, when we're uh, fallible people, why does God love us? Have you ever looked in the mirror, especially after doing something really stupid, and said, you know, if I were God, I couldn't love a person like me? See, most of us have had an experience where we've done something that really fouled up uh, our, our life, that maybe that made us ashamed or embarrassed by what we did, and deep inside, somewhere we doubt that God can love us because we know the truth about who we really are. So why does God love people like you and me? I know of only one answer to that question, that is, he loves us because that's the kind of God he is. He, it is in God's nature to love sinners like us. He couldn't stop loving us even if he wanted to. His love for us is so eternal and his character is so faithful that his love doesn't depend on anything that we say or do. He loves us just the way we are because that's the way he is. So how does this truth about God's character apply to Christian giving? Well, let me suggest four answers. One, we can't outgive God. Two, God will be no one's debtor. Three, he invites us to trust his word. And four, he challenges us to put him to the test. There's one final area that we need to talk about to complete this teaching, and it's the truth that is behind the principle that we can't outgive God. In the last year, I have become convinced that this truth, in fact, is a central issue of our life. And I'm talking about the goodness of God. 
I've been learning the longer that I live that I've still got a lot to learn about God. That may seem elementary in a sense, but it's because no matter where we are in our spiritual life, we're still far from knowing God in all of his fullness. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is good all the time? Do we really believe that? Think about the loss of life to cancer that happens every day in our world. Or the person who has just lost a child. Or a young person uh, who's just overdosed. What about people who are just struggling with life day in and day out who feel like they've taken one step forward and two backward all the time? Can you and I explain the goodness of people or the goodness of God to people who are suffering so much? How about the woman who after 27 years of marriage found her husband uh, that decided he didn't want to be married to her anymore? So they've separated and now she, he says that he never really loved her in the first place. And to make matters worse, he looked her in the face and he said, there's absolutely nothing at all that I find attractive about you. What about when we hear of honor killings and high-level corruption, when families break up, when children are abandoned, when we want to cry out, where is God in all of this? What does it mean for us to say God is good all the time in situations like that? See, I fear that some of us have constructed a God that is only the God of the good times. When our prayers are answered and life is going pretty well for us, we say, God is good. Does that mean that when our prayers are not answered and the cancer returns, that God is no longer good? If our God is only good during the good times, then our God is not the God of the Bible. More and more I'm convinced that this is the fundamental question of life. Is God good? And can God be trusted to do the right thing? to do what's right for us? If the answer is yes, then we can face just about the worst thing life has to offer us. If the answer is no, then we're no better off than people who have no faith at all. In fact, if the answer is no, or if we're not sure, then we really don't have much faith to start with. But I have learned that faith is a choice that we make. Sometimes we choose to believe because of what we can see, but most often we believe in spite of what we can see. And as I look at the world around me, many things are mysterious and unanswerable, but if there is no God and if he is not good, then nothing in this world makes sense. I have chosen to believe because I must believe. I truly have no other choice. If I sound confident, it is only because I've been learning that my confidence is in God and God alone. See, many times I've had to stand by the bedside of someone who was dying and try to come up with some kind of response when the family says to me, Rod, where is God in all of this? I don't always understand God's plan in situations like that. Sometimes I have no answers. And I feel no shame in saying that. But I also have decided to believe that God is good and can be trusted no matter what the circumstances. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have the strength to get out of bed every morning. So what does all this have to do with our giving? Let me offer four answers. First, generous givers are not people with a large bank account. We are people with a large view of God. We often look at people who are generous and think, you know, they must be rich. 
But that's not so. Poor people are often very generous, and rich people can be very stingy. Generosity has nothing to do with how much money we have. It has everything to do with our view of God. And if our God is big, then we're going to be generous people. If our God is small, we're going to be stingy. It's that simple. If we struggle with our giving, it may be because our God is too small. The bigger our God, the easier it will be for us to just give. Secondly, when we give generously, we do so because we truly believe God will reward us one way or the other. Note what the text says. It says, give and you will receive. It doesn't say you might receive or you may receive or you could be given this or that. It says you will be given. Our only problem comes with the nature of God's reward. Too often we focus on money and material gain as if that's the only way that God could possibly give back to us. But 2 Corinthians 9 speaks about receiving a generous crop. God's blessings are sometimes material, but his best blessings can't be added up on your calculator. So how does God reward his generous children? Well, it might be with money, but it also might be with an answer to prayer. It might be with deep inner joy. It might be with a new friendship. Might be opportunities to give more. It might be a new revelation of God's power in your life. It might be some some miracle that God accomplishes through you and and around you. It might be that, that peace that the Bible talks about that passes all understanding. But you know what? God does reward us. Third, generous givers understand the shovel principle. Somewhere I read this explanation of Luke 6, 38. Maybe the best I've ever heard. It simply says, I shovel it out, and God shovels it in, and God has a bigger shovel than I do. The shovel principle. And then four, generous giving is a testimony to an unbelieving world that our God is alive and God is well today. If you, if you watch much television, you may have seen at one time an infomercial featuring a man by the name of Tony Robbins. I know nothing about him except that he has sold personal power tapes to millions of people. I can't offer any words of recommendation because I haven't heard them myself, but I'm told that his tapes recommend giving 10% of your income away, a tithe, as a key principle to success in life. And the interesting point is that he doesn't tie it to the Bible or to the Christian life or any religious activity. He believes that tithing, that giving away 10% of your income is an excellent step toward financial success. And he says that when a person gives a tithe, when they, even when they're very poor, they are sending a strong message both to themselves and to others that there's a lot more where this came from. That attitude, he says, creates an atmosphere in which success is possible. And I agree with the main point. Generous giving is an excellent testimony because it's a way to say to a a world that's watching us, there's a lot more where this came from. Only when we say it, we're not talking about our investment strategy, we're talking about the God of the universe who has promised to care for his people. Let me wrap up this message this morning by suggesting an application that really doesn't have anything to do with money. Rather than just counting your blessings and saying what you're thankful for, like some of us do at Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, go around and try to say something you're thankful for, try doing something different. Try counting your blessings today. Take a few minutes today or tomorrow and make a good news about God's goodness list. 
simply list at least five ways that you have seen the goodness of God evident in your life in the last 12 months. Not asking you to write 25, although you can do that. List at least five ways that you've seen the goodness of God evident in your life in the last 12 months. And read through that list a couple of times. It just might surprise you what God's been doing in your life. Now, I said earlier that Christianity is a giving religion, and Paul certainly thought so, and when he reached the end of all that he wanted to say about giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, his mind went back to the greatest gift of all, the gift of God's Son. In verse 15, he calls Jesus God's indescribable gift. I think he means to say something like this. If we were to go to the bank today and withdraw, well, not today, it's not open today, tomorrow, and withdraw all of our money and give it away, and then go out and sell our car and give all that money to the poor and take the clothes off our back and the food out of our, off our table and give all of that to the needy. And if I were to give everything I have and then give myself as a slave to serve somebody else, I still would not have given as much to God as God gave us when he gave us his son. You see, God can never owe us anything and we can never outgive him. And when we come to the end of our generosity and begin to pat ourselves on the back a little for being such a wonderful person, God invites us to look at the cross and see the gift of his son and then realize that we really don't even know what giving, real giving is all about. Jesus is God's indescribable gift. And anything we do pales by comparison. And so my challenge to you today is don't hold anything back. Do not be stingy. Be a generous giver. If God really did so love the world that he gave us his only son, then we need to follow him and give whatever we can. We can do no less. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, teach us that we only keep what we give away. We've tried so hard sometimes to hoard things only to have them slip through our fingers, and we've tried stinginess, and it didn't work. So teach us to be generous. We thank you that we have everything we need and more besides. So open our eyes to see what you are doing in our world. Save us from spending our lives on building castles in the sand and help us to do what you did. Help us to be thankful uh, for the gift of your son and help us to learn how to give ourselves to others. We pray in Christ's name.